0: Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from April 2018 on CRISPR and genetic engineering. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org.
1: Good evening, everyone. We're going to get started now. I'm standing here in the middle of the room where our presenters are, and welcome everyone to our science cafe. Genetic engineering in the age of CRISPR. That's right. Designer genes. Genetic engineering in the age of CRISPR is the title of tonight's Science Cafe. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're all here. It's a beautiful day out, and it's great to see all of you come inside to join us for the Science Cafe tonight. My name's Amy Harris, and I'm the director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan and we're the organizers of the Science Cafe series. I want to share with you a couple of um, upcoming opportunities at the museum. We are closed, but we are still staying available to our audiences and hope that you'll continue to participate with us while we're closed as we're moving into our new facility. I'll just say a few words about the museum because not everyone knows that we're closed, why we're closed. So. Uh, Very recently, we moved most of our staff out of our old building, the Ruthven Museum's building, into our new building next door, which is called the Biological Sciences Building. So we're busy getting settled there. And over the course of the coming year, we'll be moving uh, collections and exhibits into that building and getting them set up. So approximately a year from now, we'll be opening many of our new exhibits and experiences and then later in 2019, we'll open the rest. So I encourage you to give us your email address or visit our website or um, follow us on Twitter or Facebook so that you can know what's going on with the museum. We're sending out frequent updates, the most recent of which was uh, about our Owasso Mastodon, which was disassembled last week. I think it was last week. And uh, is now being studied before it gets reassembled in the new museum. So it's a very exciting time. I invite you to follow along with us. And now I'd like to thank tonight's sponsor, um, the uh, Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Society, and I'd like to invite Gus Buchtel up to tell you about it.
2: Sorry. Thanks. Let's, Thanks, Amy. <laughs> let's have a round of Thank you very much, everybody. So Sigma Xi is a scientific honor society. I think there are many members here in the audience. Uh, members are people who um, have, a, uh, have a career in science, who have a potential career in science. The kinds of things that this chapter does here at the University of Michigan is to sponsor things like the Science Cafe, to give prizes to students who have winning posters at the science fairs, and to um, award a a prize to a teacher of the year. This year is one of the teachers at Pioneer High School, Steve Armstrong. And um, so our chapter was founded in 1903. Sigma Psi itself was founded in 1883. And it was founded because at that time Phi Beta Kappa did not uh, elect members who had studied science. You had to study the classics. So Uh, At Cornell University, some engineers and scientists decided to have a society for scientists. So with that, I I have a little handout on your tables called Why Sigma Xi, and it'll give you a little bit more background, and I'm really looking forward to tonight's talk. On next Thursday, there will be a follow-up, in a sense, to this discussion tonight, uh, a symposium, and I I think each table has a sheet uh, explaining about where that symposium is and what it's going to be like a little bit more like a debate probably so thank you very much and Kira
3: Thank you Gus and thank you Sigma Xi really uh, our heartfelt thanks um, for those of you uh, who aren't sure what sponsor sponsoring a science cafe means uh, it means that we don't have a donation box out today uh, and so all of your uh, hors d'oeuvres and everything we're not asking for a donation uh, to help pay for that and, yeah, thanks, Sigma Xi. Um, if you or an organization that you're affiliated with are interested in sponsoring a science cafe, Nora, will you raise your hand? Nora can help you out with that. <clears throat> um, so if you haven't been to a science cafe before, we have a pretty simple format. First, we have the speakers each do uh, a, shor- a short talk about what they do and um, what their expertise is and how that can uh, shed some light on the topic at hand, which again is CRISPR and and genetic engineering. Uh, then we'll have some time for you to talk at your tables. The speakers will circulate. We have a few table hosts. Uh, raise your hands. I think you're here and here. Yeah. So these folks are also people with expertise on this topic. So they're ringers, in other words. <laughs> um, so feel free to ask them questions as well. And uh, then uh, the last third of the Science Cafe will be in a moderated group discussion, and I'll be doing the moderation this evening. So with that, uh, I'd like to introduce our speakers this evening on the other side of the sheet. Okay, I'm going to introduce them in the order they'll be speaking in. Um, So uh, Tom Saunders is over here. He is the director of the University of Michigan Transgenic Animal Core Facility and research professor of molecular medicine and genetics in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan. His lab group group collaborates with biomedical researchers to produce genetically engineered mouse and rat models of human disease. And what that means simply is that with the advent of CRISPR and Cas9, Technology, researchers simply name the desired modification in the gene of interest, and the transgenic core carries out all the necessary steps to produce the genetically engineered mouse or rat model needed for the scientific investigation. That is a pretty cool job. The core also offers two-week workshops with hands-on training in the preparation of CRISPR and Cas9 uh, reagents, for genome editing four times a year. And Dr. Saunders has trained scientists from around the country and around the world in transgenic technology. So please welcome Tom Saunders. Okay, And uh, Daniel Thiel is a, a doctoral candidate in the departments of sociology and health management and policy at the University of Michigan. He's fascinated by genomics. Bioethics, public health and health disparities research. He's currently investigating social policy and social policy and equity implications of human genome editing, drawing on sociology, science and technology studies and philosophy. So please welcome Daniel Thiel.) Now I'll move so we can see Jodi. Um, Jodi Jody Platt is an assistant professor of learning health sciences, trained in medical sociology and health policy. And her research focuses on the ethical, legal, and social implications of learning health systems and precision health. She's interested in understanding what makes health and health research a trusted and a trustworthy enterprise. So please welcome Jodi Platt. Okay. So once again, these folks will be speaking in this order, and I'll just be advancing the slides.
4: Thank you for that uh, lovely introduction, Kira. So I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to try to answer the question so that uh, what is CRISPR Cas9 anyway, right? Because that's what we're here to find out. So to get a handle on what is CRISPR-Cas9, we have to go back to 1953. So what happened in 1953? So 1953, the structure of DNA was described. And then scientists knew, oh, this is, this is what DNA looks like. And so then five years later in 58, what happened? In 1958, the central dogma of molecular biology was promulgated by Francis Crick. So what is the central dogma? It is that DNA makes RNA. RNA makes protein. That's it, real simple. But it's still true today. You know, talk to any scientist in the field and they'll all agree, oh yeah, yeah, that's right, because that's the way it works. And so, um, so then that means if you can change DNA, you can change a protein. So if you're sick because you've got an enzyme that doesn't work, maybe we can fix it. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe we can break it and affect your health. Or we can do this in animal models to see, to get a feeling for what it would happen if we did it in a, in a person or a cell. So, okay, so that was 58. So how do we get to the present time? So basically, we have DNA, we have RNA, we have proteins, we have a lot of scientists doing a lot of work. And so what do they do? They think, oh, we have to figure out how to sequence this DNA thing. So they spend a lot of time and they figured out how to sequence DNA. So what happens, you give a scientist a tool, you give them DNA sequencing, and then you have labs all around the world and they're sequencing everything they can get their hands on like bacteria. You can grow up a big pot of bacteria, get out a lot of DNA and sequence it and see what's there. It's a real simple thing to do. And so there's this group in Japan, 1987, they were sequencing this bacteria, trying to figure out some enzyme and they found these repeats, these repetitive elements in the bacteria chromosome. They couldn't figure out what it was for. So they wrote it up and said, oh, we found some funny repeats in bacteria. So then you still have the bacteriologists and they're gung-ho, they're sequencing the bacteria. So then they keep sequencing. In 1987, 2002, they come up with, wow, all these different bacteria have these this pattern of repeats, and uh, maybe we can use them, but we don't know what they're for. So they want to use them to classify the bacteria into different families or genuses or species. That's all they could figure out, what they could do with these silly repeats, right? And then uh, Francisco Mojica and Jan Rood came up with this acronym, Clustered, yeah, CRISPR, What does that stand for? <laughs> Uh, clustered Repetitive Interspace Palindromic Repeats. Anyway, they came up with a fancy name for it, and it's stuck. So we're stuck with it, it's called CRISPR. Um, and so, but they still didn't know what it was for, it's just, they're just all over the place. So then in 2005, Francisco is looking at these things, and he's seeing, okay, so we had this repeat, right? So all the same all the way through, and then it's interrupted by these 20 base pair sequences of DNA. And he's staring at those 20 base pair sequences, and he figures out, oh, these 20 base pair sequences are coming into the bacteria from viruses that infect bacteria. Great. So what? So now we know where these 20 base pair sequences come from, but we still still don't know what they're doing in the bacteria. Until three years later, when Rodolf Barango figures out, oh, it's an immune system. Okay, so now he took a bacteria, and it's got this... 20 base pairs from some bacteria, virus. And so what does he do? He infects that bacteria with the same virus. And instead of the, vir- the, bac- the bacteria becoming sick from the virus and dying, the bacteria survives. So he says, aha, it's an immune system for the bacteria. Great. How does it work? I don't know. You didn't know how it worked. Okay, so, so that was 2007. So then they keep working on it, they keep working on it, keep working on it. And so in 2012 is where the breakthrough came in. So in 2012, uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who were in a big patent fight, figured out that the way it works is the bacteria are making this enzyme called Cas9, right? So what's Cas9 stand for? It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Palindromic Repeats Associated Protein 9. Right? So, yeah. So nobody's going to say that. They just say Cas9. So Cas9 is this enzyme in the bacteria. And so it's like a guard dog. So it's just hanging out and it's sniffing around. But the thing is it has a broken sniffer. It can't smell the invading viruses unless it has a guide. Specifically, it has a guide RNA molecule shown up there as the gRNA. So the gRNA is made out of that 20 base pairs in that repeat. So that 20 base pairs matches that virus exactly. And so now it sticks to the Cas9 protein, and now you've got a guy, you just gave a scent to your guard dog, so now that guard dog is gonna go sniffing around for that virus. And so if it makes an exact match on that target in the green bar, right? So the guide makes an exact match to that viral double-stranded DNA molecule and the Cas9 protein says, ah, I sniffed it out. Here it is. But then before it makes the chromosome break, before it cuts the viral DNA, it does one more check. And it looks for that red thing, the protospacer adjacent motif, or the PAM, right? Because if there's no PAM, it's not going to make a double-strand break. Because that same 20 base pair target, guess what? It's in the bacterial chromosome. So you don't want it chopping itself up. Or it would be a dead bacteria. So it has to have two signals. One, it has to have an exact match from the guide RNA. And then it has to have a match to the PAM to tell it, oh, this is a virus target. And it's not my very own chromosome that I'm about to attack. Right? So they discovered, they published this in 2012. Okay, now we know that uh, Cas9 is an RNA-guided protein that breaks DNA. And that's the basis of the bacterial immune system. So then a few months later, in 2013, two labs, one uh, from George Church, who was featured in the handout on the table, and another one from Feng Zhang, what did they do? So they took the same system, the RNA-guided protein, and they turned it around and they got it to work in mammalian cells in a Petri dish. So now you got human cells in a dish, you can grow them in an incubator, and they show that Cas9 system would make chromosome breaks in human cells. And so that's when the field literally exploded, okay? So in all of 2012, maybe there were 30 papers published by scientists on CRISPR-Cas9. And so like last month, there were 400 papers published in CRISPR-Cas9. So the interest in this in the scientific community just has exploded. It's taken over and so you can use so now they prove that you could use CRISPR-Cas9 to make genetic changes in human cells. You can make use CRISPR-Cas9 to make changes in wheat to make them resist fungal infections. You can use CRISPR-Cas9 to change the color of a butterfly's wing. You can use CRISPR-Cas9, you know, fill in the blank, right? So I hope I've given you an idea of what CRISPR-Cas9 is and how it works. And the key thing is that you can use it with that guide RNA, give give that protein a scent, and it will make a chromosome break exactly where you want it to. So it's highly specific, it's highly active, and it really works. So I'm going to turn it over to Daniel here.
5: Thank you, Tom. That was... I, I've seen many YouTube videos trying to explain CRISPR. And uh, that was excellent. We should get Tom on YouTube. <laughs> he did a wonderful job. It's a, it's a complex process. And it's... So I'm, I'm going to sort of focus our attention on what we can possibly do with CRISPR. And uh, I think for the rest of our talk, my, my talk and Jody's talk, we're going to focus on applications to human health. Uh, so there are a lot of very interesting things to talk about in terms of. Uh, using CRISPR in other animal species or in agriculture. And in, in many ways, those are very exciting uh, prospects. But we're going to focus on human health this evening. That was sort of the, I think, the consensus view. So uh, you can advance the slide. Um, so what, what can we possibly do? Um, well, the the National Academy of Sciences and uh, Medicine, uh, they, they sort of did a big study on you know, sort of the status of CRISPR and the potentially controversial and... Uh, potentially ethically controversial issues related to it. Um, as Tom just described, it has become an essential tool for basic research. Uh, it is used in, in um, labs all around the world now, and it, in part because it's incredibly easy, effective, and affordable. Right, So it's, it's a very seductive technology for that reason. Um, uh, the NAS, all, National Academy of Science, also identify uh, They sort of split it up into four areas to think about. Um, somatic genome editing which is editing of, of cells which will not be inherited. So making changes to someone, uh, but, but these uh, changes would not be inherited um, through reproduction. And then heritable or germline genome editing, where you're actually modifying cells which would be inherited by future offspring. And that divide between somatic and germline editing turns out to be one of the hot-button areas that um, the scientific community and the bioethical community have determined we we need to pay a lot of attention to. And a third thing to think about is the difference between using CRISPR in humans for therapy uh, versus prevention versus enhancement. Um, And this is sort of where we can maybe think about these things along a spectrum of risk, uh, both uh, actual technical risk and ethical risk. So... On your, on your tables I, I put together a, a handout that has a kind of a grid for you. Um, I think you can... In, it's sort of in blue. It sort of looks like this. And it's basically where we can, we can think about these things, like, what, what would these applications actually look like? What are we hoping for? And then maybe I can give you a provocation to think about these things. So, therapy is, you know, when we're treating a disease, a known disease. So, for example, uh, there's a group out at Stanford led by a, a scientist named Matthew Porteus, who's interested in the treatment of sickle cell disease. Right? Sickle cell is a good candidate because it is a monogenic inherited disorder. And so the hope would be uh, to use CRISPR, possibly, as a, as a mode of treating that disease by uh, recalibrating someone's biochemistry, by changing their genomic makeup. Um, one, one area that's not talked about as much but the National Academy of Science po- uh, sort of called our attention to is using CRISPR for prevention, which was kind of an interesting idea. The modification of the genome to mitigate future risk, for example, of heart disease. If you have a, a known risk-carrying gene and you could make a modification to it, you might be able to diminish your risk of, of, of heart disease, for example. But then we get to enhancement, which is immediately provokes some questions and, and controversies. This is where we modify the genome, for example, to increase muscle mass, to become stronger, to become faster, to become more cognitively adept, right? And en- enhancing the species beyond species normal, not just fixing us from something that's going wrong. And, uh, and then if we go down to the next line, we would see examples for germline or heritable changes. This is where we're modifying the gametes or the embryo to avoid inheritance of known uh, disorders such as sickle cell or the cystic fibrosis mutation. Uh, with prevention, it would be this similar idea. We would modify gametes or an embryo to ultimately uh, mitigate the potential risk of offspring uh, developing that, that, um, that gene, which, uh, having that gene which would lead to heart disease. And then germline enhancement, which would be the modification of gametes or the embryo to increase, for example, muscle mass or modify cognitive or behavioral traits. Okay, so this is just kind of a rough grid to give us a sense to to sort of start our our thinking about this issue. You can see the spectrum of potential applications to human health and well-being. So this all sounds kind of exciting, maybe a little scary, maybe a little interesting, uh, but what could possibly be wrong with it? So... Who wouldn't want these things, right? Um, so what are some of the concerns? Um, I, this is sort of the, the sociologist in me. You know, I have to think, of course, of all the potential hazards. This is what we do. So scientific and technical, these, these are not negligible concerns. We have to think about safety. We have to think about efficacy. We have to think about, you know, whether we can actually pull these things off in a way that doesn't create more harm than good and that the investment uh, in... in uh, There are are concerns you'll hear when you start to read the CRISPR literature more. You'll learn about off-target mutations or mosaicism um, and other potential issues. For example, uh, will humans actually have an immune response to the introduction of the CRISPR molecule? Um, There was some very big concern that sort of came up, and then another paper came out after that saying, no, 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 immune response isn't that big of a deal. Well, we'll have to see how that goes, right? There's a lot of these technical issues, there are, you know, and then we can jump right to the moral issue. Uh, if we can do something, does that mean we should do it? Anyone with um, some uh, moral philosophy will know that, we, you know, you can't move from an is to an ought that quickly. We have to come up with reasons for why we should do it. And, um, you know, there are a number of moral questions that are provoked. For example, what will this mean for future generations? There are economic concerns. Uh, what will it cost? Is it worth the investment? Will it be affordable if we can do it? Um, and decide that we should do it. Um, George Church, who's one of the eminent scientists associated with this emerging technology, Tom mentioned George Church. He, in one article, he sort of offhandedly suggested that CRISPR treatments, which would be akin to a kind of a cosmetic surgery, is likely to start to cost you know around a million dollars, maybe. Um, I think there's some debate in the scientific community about what the actual cost of bringing CRISPR into the clinic will be, and uh, but uh, likelihood is that it, it won't be as cheap as it is to bring it into the lab because uh, the complexity of moving something from the lab into the clinic um, involves a lot of cost. There are huge societal questions we might want to wrestle with. For example, what are the implications uh, this might have on our, on our human society? Will it transform our society? into something we don't currently recognize and maybe for good or for ill? Will inequalities and structural power differentials that we have in our society be exacerbated by this technology? Or could its application contribute in any way to making those issues actually better? Um, Are we entering a kind of a new era of eugenics where we're trying to rebalance society in in a particular image that we have about what we think is ideal? Of course, uh, often invoked in these concerns are are things like uh, images of Brave New World or Gattaca, that kind of thing. We can also ask, you know, what if we succeed? Will the non-controversial uses of CRISPR, which will inevitably come, provoke or sort of uh, spur us to pursue more controversial uses? Will there be a kind of an inevitable drive? Look what we've done. Look what we pulled off. Let's do more. Let's go further and further along along the line and see what, we, you know, see what we can pull off. It'll be hard to resist that, I think. Um, and then there's what if we fail, apart from the, the, you know, the harms, the immediate harm of, for example, a, a, a clinical trial failure that results in someone dying or getting sick, as we had the last time we tried this with the Gelsinger case, which I could talk about more, but I'm gonna keep moving fast. We might fail by being overly cautious. We might slow ourselves down and miss opportunities Right This thing might actually resolve some of the major issues facing the planet, so there there are a lot of uh competing possibilities here um, and then one final thing I' would point to is the the concern about hope and hype over inflating expectations. many people, for example, there's a, a lovely history of the attempt of the twentieth century efforts to help with uh, sickle cell disease by uh, keith Wilu, walu sorry, where you know he sort of i details the way that uh, hype and hope uh, interact to become uh, very painful dimensions of of living with a disease like that. And so we should think about, you know, the ways that hope and hype are pushing this whole thing along. Uh, Finally, we might think about the influence of commercialization on CRISPR. If we succeed at CRISPR in humans and we start to edit out things that are undesirable because they're extraordinarily burdensome and costly, will we create... A new pressure from insurance companies, from society, on people to make the decision to use CRISPR in their own reproductive practice, in their own reproductive life. How will these pressures exert themselves? These are a whole bunch of provocations for you to think about. On on those sheets, I kind of left these blank because I thought it might be interesting for you guys to talk about what do you think the safety risks are of these different applications, and what do you think the ethical risks are? How would you rank them, based on your understanding so far, of CRISPR? Which ones seem safer, which ones seem more ethically acceptable, ethically required, or ethically dangerous? Um, And I thought that would be a good thing to do at your tables when you're having your conversation. So I'm going to turn it over at this point to Jody, because I think I'm going long, and let Jody talk about some of the wild and woolly stuff going on.
6: Uh, thank you thank you Daniel Uh, does anyone have an opinion about this yet? Uh, so I'll give a brief sort of introduction to this phenomenon of, of do-it-yourself CRISPR, which is described a little bit in the paper that's on your table, and then hopefully provide some guidance and some frameworks for trying to sort of evaluate where we might land with some of our opinions in terms of policy, policy change, or maybe, maybe we're okay with the way things are. So... Um, I'll show you that picture again. Um, so I'm going to talk about what DIY CRISPR is. I'll tell you a little bit about what some of the rules are, um, mostly the federal regulation around it. Um, we'll talk a little bit about why you might have, why, why promote a DIY environment and certainly why you might not want to encourage that as a society and then provide a couple of quick ethical frameworks. So next slide. It's available on Amazon, uh, it costs $169.99 plus 649 for shipping. Um, it comes with all of the material you need to grow the bacteria as much as you want. Um, it does not come, it is uh, very um, explicitly not necessarily for human injection, and yet people have done it, and we'll get into some of the, um, the leaders in this field for, um, who, who are currently promoting this idea that maybe we should be trying it at home. So the FDA's position is pretty clear on this. Um, They uh, define gene therapy fairly broadly um, as uh, pretty much any modification to genes that you might want to use for treatment or for um, yeah to alter cells or for any sort of therapeutic use. They they very clearly state that DIY products are not safe and they're not to be sold. That's not to say it's illegal to use it. And it's not illegal to sell it for, not for injectable repurposes. So that statement is from a company that sells the DIY treatments, and that's mostly why it's there for their liability. The policy for, um, for other types of research and other types of use of CRISPR-Cas9 in the, thera- in the therapeutic domain is much, is, is quite restrictive. So the, N- the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which funds a huge proportion of research in the United States, has a ban on embryonic gene editing. Um, and that's certainly, that's a policy that could be changed. Um, it was a statement issued in 2015. And it may—it's subject. It's open to the um, to the head of the NIH, who's Francis Collins. So if he he changes his mind, the policy is changed. It doesn't require a legislative act. In general, there are three main levers for for um, regulating this type of research. You can regulate at the preclinical research node. So um, people who are sort of setting this policy are people who are funding it, giving people money to do the research. Um, and then institutional review boards. So, if an institution is uh, objects to the policy to the, this type of research, they can say that we can't do it, or that we can. Um, clinical trials is another phase where, again, funding agencies, if they choose to fund clinical trials using CRISPR Cas nine, then people will do it. And the FDA now also has a role in regulating um, clinical trials. And then the third node where we can intervene on these kinds of, um, this type of research is in, is in once it's sort of in the clinic and in post-distribution. So again, the FDA has a role in monitoring and, and, and um, saying how we can distribute, and then payers and insurance companies. And Daniel talked a little bit about this. So if an insurance company decides that they want to cover gene therapy, people are more likely to use it. And if they don't think it's good enough or they think it's too expensive, it'll be very hard to access for people to who don't have coverage. All right, so now I'm going to present sort of what some of the enthusiasm is all about. Um, Next slide. So this is Josiah Zayner. He started a um, company called the ODIN. He has a PhD. He used to work for NASA. And part of his um, exit from the government was based on the fact that government and science and research in the federal sphere moves way too slowly. He wanted to see this stuff move faster. And he's, you know, sort of basic. He's, he has, takes a libertarian sort of approach that freedom that humans should be free to try to um, uh, to do to do what they want with their it's their genes, so that we should be able to do what we'd like with them. When you're injecting yourself. Um, so this is not necessarily trying to introduce new genes into ge- from generation to generation, although there are... There, yeah. So it's mostly sort of what I can do. It's, it can be analogous to um, smoking. It's analogous to um, some types of plastic surgery. So if I want to enhance my body, who's, who is to say that I can't do that? So he certainly recognizes that there, there may be concerns and there's a reason to be fearful, And his original position on this before he himself injected himself with CRISPR-Cas9 and from a very large audience, he he thinks the risks are worth the benefits. And he wants to push the field of genetic engineering forward with his work. He didn't change anything. He injected himself with CRISPR-Cas9, and as far as we know, nothing happened. Does that sound right? But that's, I mean, that's part of science, right? That's part of the experimental process. Sometimes you try things and they don't work, and then you do it again, and you try, so you're trying to change things systematically. So it didn't work this time, but he's a scientist, and he sort of reviewed that process, and he's going to sort of evaluate what he thinks went wrong, and he could, if he chooses to, do it again. So this is uh, Tristan Roberts. He did not inject himself with CRISPR-Cas9, but he did inject himself with what he was hoping might be a gene therapy to treat his HIV. And his his statement on why he injected himself was that he wanted to dedicate this to the people who have died while not being able to access treatment. And this is also a very real thing. There are people who have diseases and see the research world moving far too slowly for their short lives. So what could possibly go wrong? And uh, we've talked a little bit about this. Daniel certainly raised some issues. Next slide. And here's Josiah Zahner again. This is more recently than, uh, this is I think maybe uh, oh, February, so a couple months ago. Really beginning to question that his the publicity around, uh, that he generated around the injection, his injection, his self injection of CRISPR Cas9, because in many ways it's sort of, uh, created um, within a community of people a, a zealousness for injecting themselves with things that we might not understand. Um, and so he's beginning to sort of say that people might get hurt eventually and that maybe uh, I, he has not gone as far to say that there should be laws or regulations around it, but to note that there is a, a danger and a risk. And he's still frustrated with how slow science is. We'll see. Anyway, so there are a number of ethical considerations. Um, The accessibility and cost, um, putting it on the free market may incentivize uh, the cost being too low or too high, um, and it may be too high in the context of care. We don't know. There are certainly individual liberty interests. We have a right to experiment on ourselves. I think most of us in some ways, in tiny ways, do this all the time. This is a different way of doing that, but it's, it's essentially self-experimentation. There, uh, I think we can sort of agree that there's a value to controlled clinical trials with adequate review, um, and the unknown risks and uncertain science put a big question mark over the top of all of this. All right, so now I have two frameworks, and I don't think they're on your table, but I have some extra copies if you want them. Um, to consider, sort of, you know, what should we what should we do with this new and this fairly new but um, exciting um, and rapidly growing area of research. So this is a framework on the ethics that to evaluate sort of invention as a concept in society. And that leads us to think about what the risks and benefits are, what the implications are for inequality and and inequity. And Daniel raised some of these in terms of who might be able to access these. What types of diseases will we choose to treat first or last? And how does that impact health disparities? How does it impact what it means to be human? When we're talking about genes and our genetics, it's a very fundamental question about what it is to be human and what types of life we value more or less. Um, And then what are the unintended consequences? We may start with things that are harmless, and then there's a a slippery slope argument, um, and we can sort of talk about where we think the slope should end or start. So one more sort of set of questions to think about comes from the realm of um, care ethics, which is a somewhat sort of different take on uh, bioethics that really begins to think about Who and what is at play when we're considering an area like CRISPR-Cas9 or a doctor-patient relationship or many sort of many sort of aspects of our life, where we start with who who's on the who's around the table on this particular issue? What are the technologies? And what are their roles? What are your relationships to them? What are the relationships that are important? What are the relationships that are difficult and why? And if we begin to understand sort of what those dynamics are, then we can start with understanding what are the roles that we, and relationships and responsibilities that we want to sort of further foster, and where are things that we might be able to let go, and how might we want to sort of address problems or leave things as they are. Um, So I think I'm going to leave that one more, I think I have one more slide. So the question that is very literally on your table is, should there be a law? Should the DIY technologies be be illegal? Is this something that you would try at this point? Um, Or uh, that's it. I think I'm done. Thank you. So the question on
3: the table is, should DIY genetic therapy be illegal? Um, But you could talk about, should genetic therapy be illegal in general? Another question on your table is, should you go out uh, and try it today? So in any case, you'll have some time to discuss this at your tables, and we'll come back together in a, uh, in a little bit uh, for a moderated group discussion. And I'm going to ask the speakers to kind of float around the room and, and, and talk to you uh, for the next 15, 20 minutes or so. Wow, do I hear a lot of great conversations. All right, This I can tell this is going to be hard. I am going to have to use my teacher voice. All right, can we come back together in the middle of the room? I'm going to try to interrupt your conversations here. I know they're great conversations. Wow, I have rarely heard discussions as animated. As I have this evening, and I think it speaks very well both for our speakers and the topic. Um, you guys are going at it at these tables. So um, on that note, I have agreed to moderate uh, our large group discussion. And so um, I'll be passing this microphone around, and I'll be letting folks know when they have the floor and when they don't. Um, I <laughs> I'm going to, I'll be using the cordless mic. Please use it um, for a couple reasons. One, it helps enable those with hearing impairments to hear, and also, so we're going to record this conversation for later podcasts so that people who couldn't be here tonight can pick up the conversation online. Please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I'm not an expert on this topic. A couple of ground rules. Um, limit your questions or comments to about 30 seconds to a minute, more or less, so that lots of people can participate. I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Likewise, I'll try to give preference to people who haven't spoken yet just to diversify the voices that we hear tonight. And I always hope, I know there's lots of people, not just our two ringers, but lots of people who may have some kind of expertise in this topic or some kind of experience uh, that they want to share. So it's always great when this feels more like a group conversation than just a Q&A, although I know you guys have questions for our speakers, and that is very welcome. With this in mind, please feel free to ad- uh, address questions or comments to the whole room. And, of course, we like to foster open discussion, honest debate, um, so please be nice to each other or else. Um, so um, finally... Um, I, we're recording, so please turn off your cell phone. Um, if your phone does ring during this portion of the program... Well, actually, I don't think we can turn you into a transgenic mouse. But I hope you turn off your phone anyway.
7: <laughs>
3: okay, so with that, if you want to silence your phone at least, that would be nifty. Yeah, I, you could try to turn somebody into a mouse. No. So It sounds like a neat trick, anyhow. Would anybody like to start us off with a question or thought or comment?
0: So just a simple question. Uh, has the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 been used therapeutically with documented success anywhere yet?
4: The FDA has approved clinical trials for CRISPR-Cas9 in uh, blood cell transplants in this year, 2018. So these would be for safety not for efficacy to begin with. So the answer is no.
2: Yes, this is directed to uh, Professor Sanders. Uh, How does this apply to the uh, uh, Gould Lewontin, the Spaniards of St. Marcos, and the notion that uh, perhaps this system is either a complex adaptive system or a, a complex physical system?
4: Yes, I'm unfamiliar with the rules of St. Marcus, but from my perspective, it's pretty simple. You find one spot on a chromosome or a gene, and you break it, and then it repairs or it doesn't. So it's pretty. It's pretty mechanistically. It's pretty simple.
8: Um, Is there an environmental CRISPR? Uh, project. For a long while, we were talking about the difference between germline and somatic. And then one of us said, well, what if you, it, it seems like it would be very good therapy for single gene disorders uh, like sickle cell disease. And then, and then um, uh, our facilitator countered, well, what if we make people susceptible to malaria by doing that? So uh, my question again is, is there an environmental CRISPR project?
4: So there is a lab doing research using the gene drive approach to make the, the mosquito that carries the malaria parasite uh, unable to breed to be infertile. So if you were to take it to its extreme, you could use gene drive to make a species extinct. Do humans have the right to do that?
3: Does anybody, does anybody want to respond to that? <laughs> Maybe a slippery slope.
0: I have a, I have a question. Uh, uh, what is the university's uh, policies uh, vis-a-vis uh, uh, CRISPR research, and is, does it differ from other similar kind of uh, research projects?
4: Um, so I have not studied the university's policies on CRISPR, if you go to the medical school, they'll tell you they're not that it is not permissible to use CRISPR to genetically modify, like, uh, human eggs. It is permissible to use it under experimental conditions on cells growing in a Petri dish or in an animal model to simulate a human disease, but there aren't any therapeutic applications that are approved. I don't believe the university has put in for... An FDA clinical trial for CRISPR therapy yet.
6: I think it's fair to say that in general, the University of Michigan looks to the federal government and the federal guidelines um, around things like this type of research. I think, for example, um, for spe- specifically for the like embryonic uh, types of research, that like Catholic universities would probably set their own rules and may be more restrictive than public universities like ours. Because the university is state, doesn't, this, doesn't
1: the governance of the state control that? Because we had some real problems about 10 years ago with these, some of the studies that were being done with DNA changes. Have, has any, the state said anything yet?
6: I, I'm not familiar with the Michigan law, but of course the, 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 as a state institution we need to be compliant with state of Michigan law.
3: Is, were there specific instances 10 years ago that you can summarize?
5: 15. Are you thinking of embryonic stem cell research? Yeah. That, yeah, that was tied in with, um, with a federal determination about which stem cell lines could and could not be used. Um, there was a big, great deal of controversy around that. Um, and the University of Michigan does, to my knowledge, maintain human embryonic stem cell research uh, as part of its current research portfolio. But not all. hmm I just wanted to get to the first question on the list
0: here about DYI, um, CRISPR. Um, I, 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 my own personal feeling is one somewhat of a semi-libertarian approach, and that is if all you're harming is yourself, uh, well, shame on you if you do something bad to yourself, but at least uh, you have the right to do so. Um, so I think the line between somatic and germine is a very strong line in my personal opinion. Um, there's always the issue of unintended consequences, but from a very bigger picture approach, um, this is very much like the genie of the bottle or Pandora's box being opened. I think you can assume for every person that's sitting somewhere in a room who has good intentions for this technology, there's someone sitting in a back door room somewhere thinking about what they can do badly with it. and. So the focus has to be not just on what the policy is toward its use, but also on what the policy is toward its containment should it be used improperly. And uh, we haven't seen much discussion about that.
5: That's a a good point. Um, I can call to your attention. I I couldn't give you a citation off the top of my head. Uh, I'm aware that, for example, the ability to reverse a CRISPR um, modification is something that is being researched. And I know that a lot of money uh, was allocated from the Department of Defense to study that exact problematic. I just wanted to ask, um, you mentioned a case of someone whose name started with G, and you said you didn't have time. Could you give us just a little bit? I I don't remember who that was, but... I was just... yeah. um, Jesse Gelsinger is a a young man who went to... uh, uh, Penn, I believe it was, in the late 1990s, uh, for a, um, basically a, to engage in a clinical trial that was going to in- use basically like, um, not genome editing, um, but uh, it was basically a gene therapy. And uh, he, he died as a result of the therapy. Um, and there, there's kind of a, uh, I think, a, a long tale to the story about his family feeling like they were not adequately informed as to the risk they were encumbering, um, the this anxieties about this um, offering someone great hope in a moment of great vulnerability, right? And uh, I think that that case has become a kind of a cautionary tale for people who are trying to move genomic technology into a clinical setting. Um, and I think, you know, you could certainly say that, you know, People are quite aware of that case as they move forward and they want to exercise great caution. Um, but, um, you know, as you saw with Zaner, there's also a great deal of hope, hype, you know, eagerness to move forward, you know, bring on the cures. So um, that's, I think that, that, that's the sort of the gist of that Gelsinger case. Yeah, yeah.
8: yeah that uh, Zaner slide you put up, uh, it's sort of reminded me of... Um, Uh, the legalization uh, movement in this country. Ann Arbor is is a very open place. Uh, And every state is considering marijuana legalization. But then there's the concern, well, could that lead... uh, There's also an opioid epidemic. Could it lead to an enhanced opioid epidemic if the regulations uh, aren't there? So that slide worried me in terms of the ripples... Uh, the social ripples, not the individual ripples, but the social ripples. Have you come across any analogies uh, to uh, other areas of public health uh, if if the regulations aren't there?
6: So uh, Josiah Zahner actually uses the example of smoking, uh, and that that he sort of likens this to that. There was a time when smoking was the norm, and then we sort of decided that it was too dangerous and we started to create incentives for people to stop smoking and just environmental change, you know, all kinds of sort of interventions to help sort of take that away. I mean, he tends to think, he tends to take the position that if I want to, I, I now I understand the risks of smoking and if I still want to do it, I will do it. And so that shouldn't be illegal. Like smoking is not illegal.
0: How,
4: how does the rest of the world approach that technology, China, Europe, Russia, Africa?
5: <laughs> uh, I know that our, our big competitor in this right now is China. China has moved very uh, quickly with CRISPR. Um, in fact, I, I just today read a, a, a nice editorial by some Chinese scientists about their views on regulation surrounding CRISPR and saying a lot of the things that American scientists would say. But, but the Chinese scientists have moved very quickly, um, there's a there's actually a, about a 20 minute news piece that I think CBS produced where the news reporter went to China and interviewed some of the scientists who are the leading scientists and, and they have shots of these Mycassin, uh, CRISPRed uh, pigs and dogs where you, they, you get this double musculature like they look it it really looks quite jarring like just seeing that. So you can sort of see, like, okay, well, that, that's kind of what they're thinking, moving toward. Um, so China has moved very quickly. Uh, Europe is, of course, very quite interested. Um, the Canadians are, are even more um, conservative about this than than, than we are. Um, they're very conservative about, about embryonic stem cell research, to my understanding, and, and the use of embryos. And um, so that's, that's my understanding of the, the global scene. Perhaps Tom wants to...
4: So I read that uh, in China they've already started clinical trials, but they're not regulated. They don't have anything like the FDA. So there's a bunch of scientists find a bunch of patients and say, "Oh, we can cure you with CRISPR," and then they do the experiments on the patients, and then you never hear about did it work or not. So in China they have a different. They don't have the FDA to protect people from the drug companies, right? So it's, in America we have the FDA. And they will screen drugs before they get to people to make sure they don't cause harm, which is why the FDA got started in the first place. So the FDA is actually a good thing to be there to say this gene therapy is safe or not. You know, and then the whole question of do-it-yourself is completely different.
7: So the concern about marijuana. John Boehner just signed on as a lobbyist for the marijuana industry. So you, people are evolving. Um, one of the issues, one of the issues that has come up, one of the issues that has come up is that the family had regrets. And we were talking about Jack Kevorkian and a mutual friend who chose to use Kevorkian as a way to end her life because she had ALS back in the 80s. And she told two of her adult children, but her third child was developmentally disabled, and she did not include that child in the discussions. And afterwards, there was a great deal of anguish and distress from the third child because, as this other person's family You know, the family consented but didn't consent. So I think our issue of libertarian, my body, consent is going to be very complicated by the buyer's remorse uh, of the people left behind. And I think that this is an issue that we need to discuss is, yes, it's my right to choose to die or to choose to use CRISPR or to choose whatever is a libertarian, but... Where do we as a society say that the consent comes in? Is it just between the patient and the physician? Is there anybody else who needs to consent?
5: I think that's a great uh, point. Uh, it's, It's actually the reason why, for example, Francis Collins and the NIH say we can't do germline editing because future generations cannot consent to having... To being the product of a modified human embryo, I don't know if that line will hold. I, you know, that's the current consensus. Um, but but the the questions around who gets to say, who gets to modify the human genome, right? Who owns that? Do you own it? Does do you own it? Is it is it yours individually, or is that something that goes far beyond the concept of individual property? Isn't it something that's our collective inheritance as a species? Um, Are we going to get species-wide
6: consent? Yes. So yeah, I I like to be at that conversation too I I also think that what you're driving at is is very much at the heart of what care ethics is trying to sort of get to that sometimes when we talk about things like informed consent or even issues at the policy and social level we end up missing a lot of these really important relationships that we should maybe incorporate in our decision making so you've just identified that maybe it's not just up to an individual but families should be involved in a decision like this and that maybe you need four signatures before you get the go-ahead than just
4: the one. Yeah, I'd like to say um, biochemistry is is extremely complex, and a quote I uh, hear often is that um, our genes are the software and that uh, they're a given, and everything else is a hardware that turns them on or turns them off. And that's emotions, diet, uh, compound chemistry, the frequencies we're invaded in. And isn't it a better idea to look at what uh, is turning these genes on and off and go from there rather than uh, um, take the chance of having other uh, Jesse Gallaghers and so forth? The biochemistry can be used to address health problems, right, like the statins have decreased or improved cardiovascular health. But if you have a genetic disease like sickle cell anemia, muscular dystrophy, there is no way to uh, improve your hemoglobin. There's no way to restore your dystrophin protein production because your body can't make the missing proteins. So in those cases, when you don't have a biochemical alternative, that's when people bring in gene therapy to replace the missing gene or introduce an artificial substitute for the missing protein.
9: Hey, thank you all for coming out. This has been really informed, like very informational. I really like it. Um, but just to kind of bring back to the uh, analogy that Zayner was bringing up, that it's like kind of like smoking, That, you know, uh, how how culpable is the individual when it comes to that? Because, I mean, taxpayers end up paying a lot of money for people who have been smoking all their lives. Um, I just want to know, because, I mean, even considering this Facebook, like, you know, um, Zuckerberg is – it is Zuckerberg, right? Zuckerberg is – thank you. Zuckerberg is uh, uh, testifying before Congress saying, like, oh, there's been, like – uh, everybody had the privacy rights. Like they should have known. Like this was all given to you. But eighty-seven million people lost a lot of personal data, or gave up a person a lot of personal data. Um, and I just want to know: What are your thoughts on the culpability of the individual in CRISPR, or for for doing these things for themselves if they're doing it DIY?
6: You know, it's it's easy to. I, I don't know, honestly. I mean, it's a really hard it's a really hard question, really hard. And and I would say that you know in the US and and even here in Michigan maybe even more than in other states we tend to value the personal liberties very highly so there's we still smoking's not illegal they rescinded the helmet laws for motorcycles right that's another example where we just don't we value the, the our ability to you know kill ourselves and damn it and hurt ourselves and we pay the you know we certainly we pay the we pay the price we all do um but we also pay we also value our freedom on a day to day basis and we don't feel that cost in the same kind of way i mean i'm not going to inject myself with crispr cas9 <laughs> um i don't think it's i just don't i just think it's a little silly myself but um but but i but i also respect that somebody might think it's really awesome and you know at this at this point, it's it just seems silly to me. But but, but I, it's kind of you know it, what is kind of cool about the biohacking movement is the enthusiasm around science, the ways in which they're really sort of trying to understand who they are and how they relate to the world, um, and and it is true that that our that our the current system is slow and it is burdensome and the bureaucracy is unbelievable. Um, and there's got to be another way, so it's, I don't think it's a good either or question it's a good sort of straw man, but there's there's that's you know why we'll we'll all solve the problem together
3: okay, I know I have one question here, and this gentleman's been waiting for quite a while, and then I think it is time for us to wrap up and give the room back for Connors so they can start their trivia um, <laughs> uh so I'll have to end it there. I want to point out that um, that this is the last Science Cafe until October, so I hope you all have great summers, and I hope you come back and see us in October. Um, In the meantime, if you can take just a few minutes, you'll find these little half-sheet evaluations on your tables, and if you can fill that out, and please suggest Science Cafe topics that you'd like to hear about. That really helps me choose, and uh, uh, I really appreciate that. Um, so we have one more question, and then, uh, then we'll be wrapping it up.
0: How accurately do present methods determine whether a CRISPR treatment has had an off-target
4: effect in a mammalian genome? So it's a, a huge area of concern. And if you can take an experimental animal and take it apart, extract all its DNA, you can test off targets very effectively. But even as we're sitting here somewhere in a lab, somebody's coming up with the next version of CRISPR-Cas9 protein. So right now you've got the original Cas9 protein and that's been shown to have off target effects. And then somebody came up with high fidelity CRISPR-Cas9 protein. And then they came up with enhanced specificity, CRISPR-Cas9 protein. And then they came up with hyper-accurate Cas9 protein. And the one that came out last month is Cas9X, which is even better. And so, you know, it's, yes, yeah, it's like, uh, so it's, in, it's a continual evolution of improving the specificity of the protein. And the other part of it is that all those early studies back in the day, back in, you know, 2013, 2014. Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> Way back when, yeah, we forget. I mean, they were choosing those guide RNAs, and basically they had no idea what they were doing. So they chose guide RNAs that did not target the genome specifically. So there was another paper that came out, you know, last month, like on how to tune up that guide RNA to make it highly specific and let you choose highly specific ones and throw out the ones that would produce off-targets. So this is a continually evolving field. And my guess is in the future when it does come to, you know, when it does become a routine therapy, we won't be using this Cas9 protein. We'll probably be using a completely different protein but the one that does has the same kind of function that you'll be able to direct it to a specific place in the genome and make a specific Break. I mean that's concept was like the key the, to the whole thing.
3: Um, well, our speakers have been amazing. Thank you very much, all three of you. <laughs> I'd like to take a special opportunity right now to thank Connor O'Neill um, for helping us by giving us this room for this program. So thank you, Connors. And please remember your servers. Don't forget to pay your check so that I don't have to. Um, (laughs) um, and, um, And thank all of you, because the discussion in the room makes Science Cafes great. So I really appreciate your being here. And I'll see you in October.